This is episode 1406, 1406 of Cut the Clutter. We've been around since mid-2018, a long time, and, and regular watchers would know that China has been a persistent theme. Now, what is the bummer? The bummer is that you've got almost all this quote-unquote wisdom on China from me, and I'm not a domain specialist. I don't know the language. I pick up my knowledge from what is published in international press and also what is published by think tanks and also whatever other research throws up. So I'm an outsider to the domain. What do I do, however, when I find a real domain specialist? A domain specialist with a PhD, with a PhD on one aspect of Chinese diplomacy and, and politics. Also somebody who lives in Taiwan, which is also China, lives in Taiwan, and also is a columnist, Ion China columnist for, for the print. So Sana Hashmi, we know, uh, we, we, we were, we were staking her out. We were waiting for her to come into Delhi. She, she came into New Delhi and there she is. I should actually, actually said Delhi. Why New Delhi? You are an old Delhi wala. <laughs> Thank you so much. It's a pleasure to be your cut the clutter. So <laughs> first tell us about your, uh, specialization and what made you choose the scholarship of China. You have a PhD from JNU, School of International Studies. And what was your PhD and what made you choose China? Um, I always call myself an academic by chance. It just happened. And I feel when I was starting uh, my master's, which I did from Jamia in Peace and Conflict Studies, uh, China was a buzzword. And India-China relations were very different from how it is today. Uh, so I... Uh, started working at a think tank called Center for Air Power Studies, but then later I joined JNU and I started working on uh, China's diplomacy in Central Asia. So for my MPhil and my PhD, I have worked on China's diplomacy to a Shanghai Cooperation Organization. And uh, I've been a think tanker for uh, over 14 years now. And uh, now I'm based in Taiwan and you already mentioned about that. And I'm working on China and Taiwan foreign policy. And what took you to Taiwan to work there? Why Taipei? Uh, in India, you know, when we work on China, when we talk about China, it's just China. And Taiwan is only studied or when we talk about Taiwan, when we talk about one China policy. And I think till 2020, that was the case with India, with Taiwan and China. So, you know, going to Taiwan, it was not that everyone was thinking about the strategic communities. Everyone wanted to go to China. So I think an opportunity came for a MOFA fellowship. I applied for it. I got through and I went to China, uh, Taiwan. Uh, I went to Taiwan in 20, early 2020. I was supposed to be there only for 11 months. Uh, but then I realized that there is uh, not a lot of familiarity about Taiwan. And by that time, China was becoming more insular. China, the getting to China, talking to the Chinese was becoming uh, more and more difficult. And there is a saying that if you want to understand China, go to Taiwan, talk to Taiwanese. And I think I learned it early on and I just decided to stay back and four years and I'm still there. So I have to learn from you to pronounce it right. It's Taiwan. I think in India, we instinctively tend to say Taiwan. But in English, it's actually not wrong. So it's Taiwan in English, yeah. but then it's a, it's pinyin, Taiwan. But, yeah, but, Taiwan but the local so pronunciation will be Taiwan. Ta Taiwan, Taiwan. Yeah. That's more proper. So for proper introduction also, Sana is fellow. Fellow at the Taiwan Asia, Taiwan Asia Exchange Foundation and George H.W. Bush, such as he was, Foundation for U.S.-China Relations. Uh, look at China from where you sit now. In old days, China watchers used to sit in Hong Kong. 
until Hong Kong became more of China, right? Uh, despite the promise of one country, two systems, now Xi Jinping is making Hong Kong, he's molding Hong Kong more in the image of China. Mm -hmm. So now maybe Taipei is the place for China watchers. So as a China watcher, as one of the very few India, Indian China watchers, that's a very rare species. Mm -hmm. How do you look at China now, particularly some of the economic indicators in China? Your latest column also uh, that we are publishing today, uh, you talk about declining FDI and concerns in China and what's leading to this. So tell us more about it. You do most of the talking in this episode, not I. Um, no, I think there are uh, two ways to answer as as in how I look at Taiwan, uh, China. First, as someone who is an Indian scholar, who is a China watcher, I feel that there's a lot of interest on China. Of course, its economy is declining. And this is something that as in, as Indian and Indian scholars, Indian watchers of China, we are very interested in. But I think we have had a very, very different relationship with China from a very friendly relationship to now a very hostile one. So I think our perspective and our understanding of China is also changing. And specifically when we are seeing that how China is unwilling to talk to us. So I feel our understanding of China is also becoming uh, less and less vague. But then the, my, um, the second part of my answer is I am also watching at China from Taiwan as an Indian scholar. So I actually call, I always say that I'm in a very unique position, that I'm not a Taiwanese, I'm not a Western scholar, I'm an Indian scholar who's sitting in Taiwan and looking at China. So I feel that my perception is being influenced by both as an Indian scholar and someone who is a resident of Taipei as well. Uh, so I feel that uh, when we talk about China from an Indian perspective and also from a Taiwanese perspective, the first thing that came com comes to our mind is uh, how its aggression is changing India and Taiwan policy. And I feel that economics is linked to politics as well for not just for China, as well as for Taiwan and uh, India as well. Perhaps we could talk about it a little later, but uh, I will talk about my column. Yeah. So, so, so if I may, uh, if I may put it sort of more simply, uh, what you're trying to say is that because the Chinese are giving us so much grief now that, that we are persuaded, we as in India, uh, are persuaded to look at Taiwan more closely. Earlier, because it was one China policy, don't irritate the Chinese, right? Uh, so look the other way, as if yeah. Taiwan didn't exist. I think that's a very good way to put it. Uh, but I feel that uh, there was always this acknowledgement among Indian policymakers that Taiwan is important. Definitely, there could be more uh, cooperation in the traditional areas of cooperation, such as economics. Uh, but now, what we have started doing, uh, the Indian policymakers, that they have stopped uh, paying attention to China's red lines that, you know, we cannot really ignore Taiwan anymore because we are paying attention to China. Yeah, because China lines. is drawing red lines for so everybody everywhere. all over the place. And also yes. it's not respecting our red lines. Right. So I feel that we uh, Indians also have a red lines with respect to the boundary, with respect to the economic cooperation, as well as in Indians have been asking about uh, uh, reducing the trade, huge trade imbalance, imbalance. But then what we are seeing is just increasing uh, year, every year, despite deficit, yes. deficit, but despite having mechanisms in place. So I feel that the this idea that, see, China is not respecting our red line. So there is no need for us to even go and talk about it anymore. So what exactly is happening with FDI in China? Let's, I mean, we know the larger picture. We had also featured it not, not long ago. Uh, some of the Chinese economic crisis, particularly the collapse of China's big real estate companies, and also the fact that real estate constitutes a very large percentage of China's GDP, nearly 26% now, in India at 6%, right? 
and in 2016 uh, real estate was 35.8% of china's gdp so that crisis we spoken about but now in your latest column also and bc reports everywhere that china has a real crisis with fdi because chinese ec- economy has been built by massive fdi and now looks like there's an fdi decline mm-hmm. so how much of it is there and then we'll go into why it's there i think it's uh, definitely a huge concern for the leadership because we saw that recently ministry of commerce came up uh, with the figures that there is actually a huge deficit it's declining and also last year we saw that it was over 120 billion of deficit deficit in foreign uh, direct investment coming to china and you know this is actually very worrisome for china because all these years all these decades all these foreign companies have been venturing into china and they established their foothold in china and i feel that xi jinping also in his uh, new year message he very for the very first time he talked about and it's very rare for a chinese leader to accept that you know our economy is not doing well so he accepted that that means there is a problem and then when it's being comp- uh, added by this problem of de- uh, decline in foreign direct investment so that means there is a clear sign that foreign companies are moving out of uh, china and no matter what china has been taking advantage of globalization has been taking advantage of these foreign firms in china Huge, uh, modern china is a product of globalization, globalization in fact yeah. it's a brand ambassador of globalization Uh, but then if you look at it at the same time they're also very cr- being very critical of globalization and calling it a product of uh, you know western domination and this is a part of western globalization so i feel that they're taking advantage of it but at the same time they're like you know uh, this is all uh, the part of us containment strategy and they are actually saying that we are okay with it if you want to go you can go but then at the same time we're also seeing that how they're trying to uh, lure these companies how they are trying to reform uh policies so do the chinese do the chinese think that they can draw that line that they can drive they, they they can exploit that cleavage between say the us government and us security and strategic establishment and the us corporate sector i think uh, as of now they're thinking like that because there is of course it's uh, there's consensus that governments are very different from the private sector and even if you look at the private sector not in china not in china <laughs> in china <laughs> china, <laughs> china every private company also has a party office china mein kuch aise hi hota hai jaise wo ek wo devanand ki film thi desh pardesh 70s mein usme ek line thi isme kitne raaz chupe hain poocho mere dil se tum बैठे बैठे महफिल से होता है कोई कैसे घूम तो सब लोग चाइना में घूम जाते हैं पीपल जस्ट डिसअपियर जैकमा डिसअपियर टाइकूंस कैन डिसअपियर प्रॉपर्टी टाइकूंस कैन डिसअपियर टेक टाइकूंस प्रॉपर्टी टाइकूंस top ministers can disappear military officials at military least. officials can defense minister external foreign minister rocket force chief right they all disappear and also film stars mm. sports stars they can all disappear like that so it's a very different kind of system so if you are a foreign executive working in china and you see this change and you come from a free country uh, you'd worry kyunki jaan sabko pyari hoti hai jaan bhi aur azadi bhi nobody wants to be taken prisoner or nobody wants to be spied on all the time so those are i think government interference is too much in china for these business as in they have dealt with it for a long time but i feel it's becoming more and more difficult in china now china is very very different from how other countries work uh, but i feel that uh, they, they, they this was a realization that you know 
no matter what the government is doing, the US government is doing, there, there is great power rivalry, but the companies will come to us. The big corporate, they would come to us. But I feel with this uh, Europe's de-risking, as well as the great power rivalry, it's actually impacting uh, these uh, companies. But apart from that, it's not just, it's not easy to do business with China anymore. And then what are you even doing? You have lower interest rate, the economy is slowing down, um, and then the regulations. And then it's just not about the US that's taking advantage of the great power rivalry and asking its companies not go to China. But even the Chinese are making it more politicized. The business environment is becoming more... And, and Chinese more. entrepreneurs and the richer Chinese are leaving or taking their assets out. Yeah. Like we have seen, it's a very common trend in Hong Kong now. A lot of Hong Kong companies are thinking about it and doing it. Yeah. And foreign executives also are afraid of going to China because of surveillance, because of what somebody might catch and some people are arrested. So it's a... And the hostage diplomacy is after the two Michaels, the Canadian yes, Michaels. Yeah. Although they were not really such nice guys as it turned out. They were yeah. both they were both Canadian crooks. It's spies, just that, yeah. it's just Canadian crooks and spies. Yeah. Uh, lying, spying crooks. Although Canadians tend to be so holier than cow, if I may. Yeah. No, no, definitely. We we have uh, we we have witnessed that as well with yeah. India. Yeah. So, uh, FDI. If I read your article, in your article, uh, the big data points are that between Jan and July last year, China saw inflows decline. FDI inflows decline by hundred and eighteen billion dollars. That is serious change, right? And then you say after July, in the three months after July. That is July to September, it declined by another 11.8 billion. It's, it's close to 120 billion. Imagine in nine months. Yeah. So, and, and, and it looks like there is no, there is no bottom to it. Uh, why is, why is this happening and which investor, investors are going away fastest? I think um, uh, there are uh, multiple factors behind it. I've already talked about how the economy is slowing down. And also, it's not a country where you could go to the government and say that, you know, we are having issues and you have to have reform. Of course, we have seen the state council have uh, has come up with uh, some measures, 24 measures last year. And then Premier Li Chiang also has been holding meetings to reform uh, the economic policies, but there are economic interests that are not best suited to these companies anymore. And some of the investments have also matured. So now the uh, way forward for these companies to go somewhere else or continue doing business in China. So I feel that there is uh, these companies and I also in my article, I have uh, quoted this uh, survey by European Chamber of Commerce in China. So according to the survey, a lot of companies, like two thirds of the companies that were surveyed, losing confidence in doing business in China. And I feel for these companies, of course, there are factors. And I, of course, the, the factors would be there. The problems would be there with other countries as well. But with China, there is the, um, the influence of the interference of government is so much and so that, that these companies are like, you know, there, there is a domino effect. There is a trend that other companies are moving to countries such as Vietnam, Indonesia, um, India. So why not we go and be a part of the growth story of countries such as India and Vietnam? Why do we have to put up with uh, something uh, that the Chinese are doing? And then apart from that, it's just not that there are economic factors. There are a lot of political factors that we are seeing. Uh, China, and specifically under Xi Jinping, there is frequent weaponization of trade and investment. Then there is economic coercion. So uh, there is no segregation between economics and politics in China. And the lines are getting blood so the old era is gone when deng xiaoping said keep okay. politics and economics 
on two sides, right? Should should be separate. Let's build our wealth. Let's build our strength. And basically, he put these into two separate compartments. Xi Jinping has lifted that dividing. A dividing partition between the two compartments. Absolutely, I think one of the things uh, that Xi Jinping did when he came to power was to undo specifically Tang Shopping's policies, like hide your time, bide your strength. This is something that we have been seeing specifically in a lot of uh, military conflict. Look at South China Sea. Look at Taiwan uh, and economic policies as well. So I feel that this is a part of uh, Xi Jinping's legacy. That you know, I am very different. I'm going to be here for the rest of my life. I'm the president of life for uh, life. So this is how I do things. So if I put it like stealing some some words from Deng Xiaoping, uh, I think he said to Rajiv Gandhi that there is this border problem, but maybe our generation does not have the wisdom to resolve it. Leave it to a wiser generation. So leave it to day after tomorrow. In in Xi Jinping's view, day after tomorrow is today. Should have been yes. Should have been day before yesterday. That means should have been in Deng Xiaoping's time. So there is a complete repudiation of yes. Deng Xiaoping's politics. Uh, you know, it's a very interesting point uh, how Tang Shopping said that we will, we are not wise enough and let's focus on other aspect of the relationship. But when he mentioned that he actually focused on strengthening relationship, like how India-China relationship was strengthened, or at least there was this willingness and effort to stabilize the relationship. There were a number of agreements that were signed in the 1990s, 2000, and also how Rajiv Gandhi went on this landmark visit, then Atal Bihari Vajpayee, Narasimha Rao. It was a very different period. But I think when it comes to Xi Jinping, the idea is is that I am I think he's following Tang Shopping's policy when it comes to the resolution but when it comes to the escalation intentions in India China boundary dispute I think he is just doing everything to make it worse and worse as in the relationship is definitely normal there is no willingness from the Chinese side to resolve the issue but it's not that it's actually on the back burner the boundary dispute is very much at the forefront so when the Chinese today are saying that, you know, let's just focus on other aspects, the relationship, that was the policy of Tang right, Shopping as well. Right. But uh, they are just ramping up tensions. Now they are saying, but what that means is that you overlook all our transgressions. Yes. And right. focus on other aspects, but where also we are not going to give you concessions. Right. Right. So uh, we talk about FDI declining. So Americans are, yes, American companies bring a lot of FDI into China, but there are also others. Japanese bring a lot, but Taiwanese bring a lot, right? Mm. Uh, in fact, Taiwanese bring probably the largest for FDI to China after America. What? How does it? Stack I think up? it's definitely going down. So it's I going don't. Down. It's uh, because uh, I think in 2022, uh, 34% of the FDI that was going out from Taiwan was going to China. Now it's just 11%. So I think it's uh, Taiwan so 34% is 34% to 11% means it's less than one third. It is, yeah, it was very, uh, because earlier there was a lot of business connection between Taiwan and China. And Taiwan, because there was a lot of familiarity, you know, same language, exactly. same race somewhat. So, and they knew how to deal with the Chinese. So, specifically after when Li I like the way you say same race somewhat, because that's very much a Taiwanese view. Uh, I think this is, <laughs> but I think this is actually a fact that how Taiwanese are viewing themselves uh, very different from uh, the Chinese. Uh, 
the identity is changing the way they function is very different from how the chinese function but uh, yeah a lot of uh, businesses went to china and china has been uh, their first preference to do business uh, but after dpp came to power and after the 1992 consensus was revoked by dpp we have seen that dpp how is the party, the party that came to uh, uh, it's a democratic it's a progressive pro- party Dem- democratic progressive party which is the pro independence party i would call it a pro status quo party because there are different lot of different factions so one yeah, faction they, they blow hot, hot and cold yes but i would say that if i have to uh, define them in uh, in one way i would definitely call them a status quo party but, but i think it's but, very individual but before elections somebody gets up and becomes more pro independence the guy who got elected now in his campaign etc he sounded more pro independence i think generally he is as uh, in he has openly talked about his views on taiwan uh, should be an independent country uh, but i think once he became the candidate for the president he mellowed down and he told the party line uh, saying when the current president who is stepping down because they have this rule of two term a uh, rule for president so um, uh, i think he is very much whatever his personal views are that is not really uh, coming to the forefront and he has accepted that if he when he's in power he's definitely going to promote status quo and he's open to uh, for a dialogue with china so where is where is taiwanese investment going now they can't invest so much in taiwan and now i think there's saturation they're definitely looking at southeast asia some of the countries such as vietnam indonesia philippines and definitely india uh, of course a long way to go for india but we've already seen how taiwan's foxconn is coming to india expanding operations in india which is apple's main manufacturer and uh, we recently saw that how india has awarded the third highest civilian award padma bhushan to taiwan's chairman and ceo yang liu and also yang liu was the chief guest at 2023 semicon india and he assured modi that taiwan is your reliable partner and when you are developing semiconductor ecosystem we would be there for you if not the entire semiconductor industry of taiwan but at least foxconn will be there and he also said that uh, i uh, prime minister modi told him that it is equal to india and taiwan and modi i saw the body language modi actually nodded when he was on this stage so even though we do not talk about taiwan openly which i feel that we are doing it now but we know that how important taiwan for us when we talk about semiconductor when we talk about attracting investment so i definitely feel that uh, media tech foxconn uh, some of the uh, uh, companies that are seriously looking at india so what is the biggest negative with xi jinping's style i think his aggression and his um, this idea that i have to project that china today's china is a strong china and we stand up to the bullies but what are these bullies you know it depends on who you ask if you ask the us if you ask india if you ask philippines it is china but for china every other country is a bully so i feel this even little taiwan is a bully although, <laughs> although we have to be careful saying that in the context of countries yeah but yeah exactly as in every country is a bully so i feel this idea that a non concessionary non negotiable uh, approach of dealing with countries is something that i find one of the negative aspects of xi jinping foreign policy and that is what is now getting foreign investors jittery i think this is definitely one of uh, the reasons uh, i think no even though we have talked about how private sector corporates are different from the government but they do work uh in uh, alignment with the government as well when the entire europe is talking about de-risking of course actions do not match words and it's a different thing altogether but but europe i want trust 
because they say these things in whispers but do something else on the uh, side yeah specifically france and germany when yes. it comes to china but uh, but if you look but at but france, france is not uh, the french are not hypocritical they are not but i feel it's also easier said than done we say today that we want to decouple we want to de-risk but then no one actually knows how do we achieve that we as in india we indians and also uh, yes. i would give uh, the benefit of the doubt to the french as well and some of the other european countries that are serious about diversifying so but i feel i see some kind of push specifically from the smaller uh, central eastern european countries and particularly the baltics yeah totally as in they are They're small they, countries but Yeah, but but they are. Uh, I think giving it back to the Chinese. I think look at the uh, the Lithuanian administration. Yes. Look at the Czech Republic is just totally uh, different from how Germany is. Uh, Uh, reacting and responding to the chinese but then also uh, us has been putting in a lot of policies and really encouraging its businesses corporates to go out of china and come back to the us and invest in a, a lot of other countries so i feel when the great um, uh, power competition is going on countries are also like we don't know what's going to happen with china we don't know what policies uh, the us is going to employ so is it going to impact our businesses So I feel that this is something that's uh, definitely a lot of consultancy firms are getting into. A lot of companies are thinking. So I I do feel that it's not really working in China's advantage. But when I'm saying it, it doesn't mean that uh, China is going to fall tomorrow. That they slow yes, down. Yes, so we need to understand that well. It's not as as if the Chinese economy is declining. It is that the Chinese Chinese economy is still growing, but the economic growth rate has declined quite substantially. Yes. yes. And China Chinese economy was the engine of the global economic growth. As in, it's still the manufacturing hub of the world. Yes. So. So China's China's decline affects everybody. Of course, in the same period, American economy has grown. It's a much larger economy, which is a positive. But Chinese economic decline is what everybody feels at this point. I will ask you a triple question instead of asking you three questions. How important is Taiwan for China? How important is China for Taiwan? And how should India navigate this Taiwan equation? I think uh, all are very good and vast questions. Um and I think this triangle China, Taiwan, India, all these three countries are very important to each other. So when we talk about the importance of taiwan for china we know that how china has been claiming taiwan since 1949 when they took over the mainland um but as in i feel that of course it's strategically it's very important the position of taiwan but it's a different thing altogether uh but for xi jinping legacy it is becoming more and more important i think if he has to prove that you know he's a president for life one thing he would really want to happen is that taiwan should become uh should reunify this is chinese language reunify with the motherland so i think this is a part of xi jinping legacy and this is i feel the most important aspect of how china and xi jinping sees taiwan and if taiwan does not want to reunify you think xi jinping will use force to make it happen so first of all <coughs> with this word reunify so there is this common uh, narrative and perception and i think that's a fact that taiwan was never a part of china it was ruled by yes. the japanese yes. uh jing dynasty but it was never ruled by the prc yeah it, it it also had a, a local population yes. native population native population so this idea that you know china keeps saying that we will reunify with the the mother the we will reunify taiwan with the motherland so this idea so this is a narrative this is an argument that has been given by the um, uh, the taiwanese uh, i do not see invasion happening anytime soon 
uh, of course, Xi Jinping would still want to reunify it peacefully. But of course, he has also said recently, and he has been saying it for the past two, three years, that I would also use force if I have to. Uh, but I do not see invasion happening anytime soon. First of all, we have just talked about the economic domestic issues that China has been dealing. So it doesn't have resources right now to deal with it and is still in the process of PLA modernization. But apart from that, it's just not going to be a war between China and Taiwan. It is definitely going to get the US into the scene, then also Japanese. And apart from that, now we have AUKUS, now we have Quad. So all these countries, it's just not the US and I... I feel that, of course, there is policy of strategic ambiguity when it comes to the U.S. coming to Taiwan aid in case of an invasion. But despite that, but there, is, there is a law there. As in, if it's in the U.S., if it's an invasion, if it's an unprovoked uh, uh, invasion, definitely I feel that we do not have any doubt that the U.S. will come to Taiwan's rescue. Uh, but I feel that now uh, even India is thinking about. Taiwan, not that it is thinking of a military role in a Taiwan contingency, but I do see uh, that India is seriously <coughs> thinking about what is going to happen if China invades Taiwan. Because if China falls, Taiwan falls under China, it's just not in any country's interest. Imagine how strategically, how significant Taiwan's position is. And it's in the, the South China Sea. It will be much easier for uh, uh, the for the Chinese to exert dominance on the South China Sea on the wider Indian Ocean. Yeah, as far as Taiwan is concerned, uh, I what it is trying to do is to minimize the importance of China for its businesses, for economy, uh, as well as politically as well. And we are seeing since the DPP came to power, what they have started doing is to reach out to like-minded countries in the region. Of course, a long way to go. Lack of diplomatic relation is definitely a problem. But we are seeing despite that a lot of countries are talking to Taiwan, are talking about Taiwan. No conference is complete without talking about the Taiwan question. So... Taiwan is definitely moving away from China and moving towards countries such as US, Japan, and I would say India as well. Yeah. So the way I look at the picture, uh, China wants Taiwan to reunify. On the other hand, China is a country that has, or a system that's gone from being a more, a less illiberal system from where it began to grow under Deng Xiaoping to becoming a much less liberal system. Yeah. So becoming, it was never democratic. The so Chinese would object to that. They say they have the best democracy in the world, right? But from being relatively liberal and diplomatic to be much more dictatorial now. Absolutely. Whereas Taiwan, on the contrary, started out as a dictatorship under a martial law mm -hmm. and has now become a very robust democracy. Absolutely. So don't you see the two moving in different directions? So, as in, this is a very good way to put it. And this is something that we have also been seeing that how, in fact, from Taiwan side as well, this is the narrative that they have been trying to project that perhaps we are an alternative to China and a democratic alternative to China, but we are also very, very different from the Chinese. And it's not just a robust democracy. I would say that that is a perfect democracy that we are witnessing in Taiwan. And um, I think this is the narrative that, you know, China is China, Taiwan is Taiwan, and we are very different. So this is something that is the actually that is becoming a policy of the administration. Well, can, as well. can the democracy of Taiwan also influence the public opinion in China, or does it? 
uh, and then we don't know what uh, what actually happens within the local people but if you just go by the uh, the social media which i also don't really see it as the perception of the local people because when you go and talk to the local people they actually have a very different idea and also there is a lot of familial connections between taiwan and china so i think it's a very different narrative when we are on the ground but if you just look at the social media definitely they are towing the government line but also these are the account that are in china yes they, they that are by the it's mostly by the trolls and the government owned uh, how, media how closely do you follow the chinese social media i do follow uh, social media and i would say that it's uh, nothing different from uh, uh, global times and or cgt and oceanhua i see so you don't get any other diversity of views it's there. it's there it's very much there but i feel that uh, you know there is so much censorship even if someone who's saying that saying anything that is against the government you know they just censor the the word they just censor the account so it's definitely there and this is why i said that there are a lot of people in china and they have different view not everyone is uh, just doing what the government is saying not everyone is saying that you know china should invade taiwan before i let you go how did you handle the language challenge i know there is a culture challenge there is a food challenge uh, there is a lifestyle challenge but the language challenge is the biggest how did you i, I don't uh, then i've been there for 4 years so I, all these food language and all these challenges i think i have kind of surpassed that and i quite i'm, I'm accommodated and taiwan is a very welcoming place and how place. good is your language knowledge of the language it's manageable it's good can you write can you i, I know you can read can you write i can read but i think reading is much better much better I just don't like my uh, writing in the, ca- the character. And, and, and you can converse, obviously. Yes. So that's what makes you such a brilliant asset for India. For to have a young Indian scholar with genuine scholarship and domain knowledge living in Taiwan in Taipei, watching China. And you know what? I'm also trying to remind you how much valuable it is for us that she is a columnist on the print. So please do check out her column every week. I on China. Thank you so much. Thank you so much Sana.